Hello, I'm Paul Mathias, National Director at Hayes Education. As the UK's leading education recruiter, we're absolutely committed to sharing meaningful insight and information with the education community. And we're delighted to be working in partnership with Sir Tim Brickhouse and David Cameron, the real David Cameron, on this series of podcasts based around the Hayes booklet on 10 challenges to becoming a truly creative school. These podcasts are a, a great opportunity to learn from Tim and David's experience and ideas. We hope you enjoy this series of podcasts on Creative Curriculum. Well, hello again, and if anyone's listening to these in sequence, this is podcast four, and I think what we want to look at tonight is the whole idea of involvement. Um, involvement of young people, involvement of parents, and involvement of the community in a creative way in school improvement and development. There's been a really interesting discussion on Twitter recently uh, Deborah Kidd, who's a well-known activist, thinker, uh, presenter, has set up a new blog line, which is effectively targeted in parents. And there's been an awful lot of interesting discussion around that and some concern from parents that they're not allowed to challenge enough. And I think that's set against a concern at times that they have too much power through governance and governing bodies. <clears throat> I think what we wanted to get at, Tim, when we were looking at the idea of leading the creative school was how we could make that involvement of parents both constructive and creative. I'm just interested in you starting us off in terms of your thoughts around how we do that. Well, the first thing to say is I've always used a kind of map of school improvement, each of which seems to me you should treat each of the elements within the map you should treat creatively. So for me, it's leadership and management and teaching and learning and staff development and environment and review and all those sorts of things. And the two Cinderella's for me, to which people have not given much thought, are the involvement of students or pupils and the involvement of parents in the community. Now, we're kicking off with parents in the community. And if you look at parents, the first thing to say about them is, well, they've got the kids for probably 80% of the youngsters' waking time, and schools have only got them for 20%. So my starting point would be what's happening in that 80%. Uh, most of us find it difficult enough to be good enough parents. Uh, but we try very hard, uh, and there's an American woman called um, LaRoe who has written a book on a group of families, some of which are working-class families and some of which are middle-class families, and the difference between the two is that the parents of the middle-class families, it, it's an American study, are taking youngsters off every day of the week. I'm sure people listening to this will relate to this. And at the weekends, to various classes, whether those are classes of ballet or, or drama or, or um, various martial arts, yep. whatever it may be, soccer or whatever. And they're trying to enrich the experience of those youngsters and get exhausted and use up quite a lot of petrol and taking them from one place to another. Now, 
the working class families in America, on the whole, are not doing that. And they're allowing the kids to play in the street. And therefore, my first point about, about the involvement of parents is to say, hey, wait a minute. Parents are the first educators and they continue to educate the children. And on the whole, we don't address that very seriously. <coughs> we do address the issue of parents as consumers, parents as a captive support group, perhaps through the yep. PTA, parents as governors uh, and holding us to account. And all those are important. I'm not getting away from that. But the really important part is that they are the first educators and how on earth do we as schools, in a creative and non-patronising, non-threatening way, enable those parents to take those issues seriously? Well, for me, it's setting out... I, I felt this very strongly when I was in Birmingham, and I, I, I feel it as strongly now. We did it in London. I've done it with the local school, where, I've, where the head has taken the lead with his staff, with his parents to have a debate about what are the experiences that all of us would want our children to have. It's a primary school between 5 and 11. And how do we make sure that... You see, that builds harmony. Mm. I mean, because the middle class will say, absolutely right, that's what we do. And the working class will say, well, how the hell do we do that? And there are ways in which schools can enable that to happen for all children. So I think it... To focus with parents on them being the first educators is incredibly important. And I'd go further and say, well, there are, there are imaginative ways of bringing those parents on side. Uh, I mean, there are ways in which I was in a school the other day that, as a matter of course, every weekend on a Friday sends a set of postcards to parents and they might have a double aim some of the postcards will be to tell the parents of good things that have happened that involve their kids and it's through the post and an, another will be to thank parents for what they've done in involving their kids now if you do that cumulatively you'll have a huge effect on the environment of parents taking, trying to be the good enough parent. And, I, and I, my view is you should tackle that. I'm dodging the question for a moment, but I'll return to it. Of Well, okay, sunshine, you're being incredibly naive because there are a set of parents here, and we'll return to that in a minute. There are a set of parents who one head was talking to me, they called them kiddles in the sense that they're so young as parents that they're hardly adults themselves mm. Mm. and they find it incredibly <clears throat> difficult to be good enough parents and I think there's a whole separate debate to have about that but in principle I'd like to see to, to ask you what you make of my comment about creative ways of enabling parents to be the first educator. Well one of the things that I've been talking about in a different context this week is this whole idea of parents being encouraged to outsource the role of parent and when you talked there about 
appearance as consumers, that really struck home with me because there is that whole thing around of parents holding schools to account, a whole sense around that that responsibility has been outsourced for the development of their children. Yeah, yeah, that's terrible. And there have been so many occasions where, as a director or a head of education, when I'd be dealing with parents, and they would be complaining about what the school was doing, and I would throw in the question, which might be a straightforward question, like, when did you last read with your child? When did you last play with your child? And parents would be completely thrown because that wasn't the nature of the conversation. The role was to make demands. And what I tried to do in these meetings and conversations was to turn that round to how do we jointly parent? And I think that idea, the old concept of the school being in loco parentis, yeah. It's something that we've neglected at our peril. No, I agree with that. And I, I love I, that example, by the way. Yeah, and I love that idea too of how can we make the most of that joint responsibility around education? And we won't do it unless we're clear about entitlement, clear about experience, and clear about what it is that works for children in terms of growth. And there are so many things, Tim, which trouble me around that. Um, I think the the difference that you made between the middle class and the working class parent, I often saw that stood in its head. In some of the areas where I worked, yeah. I would have middle class parents yeah. with huge mortgages, yeah. huge financial commitments, who were financially rich but time poor, and their children were amongst the most neglected in terms of care, love and education of any of the children that no, I saw. No, no, I really agree with you about that. And by the way, I think we're living at a time where the use, the ready use of social media and the way in which people are engaged. I mean, we were in Edinburgh recently um, and we were walking from one place to another and sat in a cafe and there was a father and a mother, each engaged on their iPhones. Mm -hmm. And the kids were engaged in ordinary play in the street. And they were being totally ignored by their parents. And I think they were middle class yeah. parents. I mean, I don't know whether they were, but, 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 but my guess is that they were. So the advent of the technologies has kind of made it even more difficult to be a good enough parent. Ah, and I think that discussion around what constitutes a good enough parent and what constitutes a good enough in loco parentis related to that original discussion, I think is, is a conversation that we neglect. Um, I think particularly in England, the whole dialogue is, what is it that schools should deliver? And how can you as parents through governance hold schools to account for that? And that, I think, makes the idea of joint parenting, as I've described it, something which is harried and driven rather than something which is shared and encouraged. And that move away from shared and encouraged makes it a far less creative experience, in my view. No, I agree with that. And I suppose we're really agreeing that, so far as parents are concerned, um, it's become more difficult. Uh, it. I would be still concerned about 
poverty getting in the way of a set of experiences that kids would Indeed. have. Um, though I think the advent of the technologies is affecting those who are advantaged and disadvantaged equally because it requires a degree of self-restraint to find time for the children. But of course there are things that schools can do to make to, to encourage the involvement of parents as supports to their education. When I was in Birmingham, there was a woman, and I gather it still carries on, who initiated things called Inspire programs. And essentially, Inspire programs were devices that enabled all parents to get to the school to take part in joint, this is in primary schools, to take part in joint learning with their children and they were all kind of persuaded cajoled into coming and it didn't matter from which socio-economic class you were coming the the increase in participation was huge now there are devices like that they used to be uh, in the english context they used to be really good work out of uh something that was originally called uh CEDC in Coventry, the Community Education Development mm. Centre in Coventry, with John Rennie, and that was subsequently taken over by um, Continue. And that centre, and I think it exists no more, but that centre pioneered a whole set of very clearly articulated interventions that enabled schools to st make it more rather than less likely that they could engage parents. Um, my great fear is, David, really on this one, that your comment about parents being encouraged to hold schools to account gets in the way of the confidence of the school to engage in the way I'm describing. Right, and, and I, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think what we've done a lot of the time is created a climate of defensiveness on the one hand and also a climate of demand on the other. And I think ultimately we need to move away from that and we need to move back. And I think we've made it clear already towards that sense of joint responsibility for children. Um, I, I think I'm also interested, Tim, because what you've done is you've touched on how we make this work. Um, you've talked about the shared experiences, you've talked about some of the programmes that you've observed in England. And I think in Scotland we've had book bags, we've had joint yeah, reading programmes, we've yeah. had all sorts of things around that which have encouraged that joint responsibility for parents. You've touched on social media and new technologies in a negative sense, but I've heard you in other contexts talk about the power of using Facebook and social yeah, yeah, media yeah, yeah, yeah. to yeah. engage parents creatively. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and schools do that. That's terrific. I mean, if you look to the wider community, and we haven't, and we must, which is that a school, particularly primary schools, and particularly in Scotland, schools are very much connected to their local community. Mm -hmm. uh, it will be different in urban areas at secondary in in the English context, but in primary, they are connected to their local community. And I've always admired those schools that have gone out of their way to involve the local community, whether it's been, you know, there are an, a, a plethora of community sports clubs 
um, and other clubs within a community. And I'm impressed by those schools who have a list of those within the school accessible to the children and how the staff encourage youngsters to belong to those mm. community arts and sports clubs. I, I, I think that's fantastic. And, and some schools do it and some don't do it at all. And then there are the primary schools which kind of have involved the local community in the guise of the local shops in, in reinforcing curriculum, uh, reinforcing behaviour issues. Mm -hmm. So they've shared with the, so that the local shopkeeper can give uh, credits to children and parents when they visit the shop. I admire the school which I've come across, which which actually gives a, an award which should be spent in a local restaurant uh, for the family. Uh, and, and that seems to me to be another way of trying to engage the local community on behalf of the school. Yeah, and I, I think that kind of involvement has almost become a casualty of our obsession with raising attainment. No, I agree with that. Because what I've talked about on other occasions is that the whole raising attainment debate makes schools and teachers the shock troops of social mobility. And there's a risk, I think, with what we're doing of enabling children to escape from their background, from their environment. I think there's a risk that we have that concept of social mobility. Whereas I think what you're talking about is how we can enrich a community and through that, enrich the life chances, the opportunities, and ultimately the attainment of young people as well. I mean, is that something that you would share and agree with? I do agree with that, and that brings us nicely to the issue which we must also, which is the second Cinderella, which how do you, how do you involve students or pupils in in the school, which I think is, is honoured in the breach rather than, you know, so we have the nominal schools council, yeah. we have a few people who are involved, we might even give them a budget. We have an endless debate about kind of head boy, head girl. And that ignores a whole possibility of involvement that we now have educational advantage, which is peer tutors, peer counsellors, peer mentors, all those things which we know from the research are low cost with high outcome. So older youngsters being engaged and trained to do it. Um, there's a very interesting initiative in this respect in Somerset, which people can Google, called Learning to Lead. Oh, yes. Uh, I think I've talked to you about it before, which is enabling young people. So if you went, for instance, to the Blues School in Wells, and I can already sense that people might be listening to this and saying, Blues School in Wells, what's that? Well, it's a comprehensive school that serves the whole of Wells. So it isn't as it sounds, because it does sound rather posh. It's a super school. Uh, but if you go there, you'll come across a, a kind of rotunda, which they've built, where the youngsters, three quarters of whom are involved in running out of school activities, guided by the staff, who are engaged seriously in making the out-of-school provision and in sharing their expertise amongst themselves and learning in the process. It's a powerful example of learning to lead. Um, and it's not the only school. Chew Manor down the road from 
the blues school does the same sort of thing and i'm sure it's all over the country it's just that i've had the privilege of seeing that they take student involvement seriously and too many schools in my view i'm not being critical but they're so preoccupied with again what we said is the agenda um which is which is failing to see that if you can get the youngsters involved in every aspect of running the school there's a vested interest in it running smoothly i would never forgotten the inspector who came to me when uh in in birmingham and i asked him how a school was going in and he said well i've been there and it, i've got to say the staff are working incredibly hard but actually the students aren't working hard at all um <laughs> And, and there is an element of that, isn't there? So yeah. how do we get students involved? What's your take yeah. on this? Well, I've recently been involved in the My World of Work, which is a, an online platform uh, for careers, information, advice and guidance in Scotland, run by Skills Development Scotland. And they've established a cadre of what they call MyWow Ambassadors. And these are young people who are given additional training, both in leadership and in terms of the platform itself and are then working with other young people in the school and the initial responses that we've had to that have been excellent um we've been looking in a number of instances at young people involved as maths ambassadors or modern languages ambassadors and taking on a key role and it's that sense i think that you're pushing for of a real involvement in the life and work of the school. Not something that's tokenistic. It's not coming along to represent some underclass, if you like, as a, a school council, to have some marginal influence on decisions that might be taken around matters that are peripheral. But actually embedding these young people fundamentally into those elements of life in the school that make a difference for other youngsters. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I suppose I'd be saying, well... In almost any activity, we should ask the question within a school, if we want to be creative, well, how are we going to involve the students on that? That ought to be a first question. Um, and not a question which will follow would be, how are we going to involve them? Mm. Not, are we going to involve them, but how are they going to be involved? And I don't think at the moment that happens to the extent that it could and should. Because what we want to achieve with youngsters is that they think for themselves and act for others. And I don't think we can do that unless we enable them to take leadership positions, them to take managerial positions. And if you look, typically, I mean, and it must be true in Scotland as well, you see youngsters... I tell you, this is one of the cardinal weaknesses of transition, namely that youngsters at a primary level in the last year of primary school take very serious mm. steps of responsibility, posts of responsibility that they've bid, they've bid for, they've applied for, they've taken seriously. And any self-respecting last year primary teacher would enable that to happen. They're going to secondary schools, and I've got to say, on the whole, that practice doesn't continue. They're kind of infantilised again, rather than treated as the mature, growing adult that they should be. 
And that ties back, I think, into another conversation which we do keep returning to. Um, and it's the whole concept of care. One of the things that I've always been impressed by when you've spoken about it is the recognition of young people and how important that is and the commitment that we need to make to give them back that identity. You know, you've talked about transition from primary to secondary and talked about asking secondary teachers to be aware and to have a conversation within a limited time after young people have made that transition with that youngster about something personal, something that's important to yeah, that yeah, youngster, yeah. which would give that recognition. And it's that link, isn't it, that the whole idea of that fundamental pupil engagement isn't about the formality of role only, although that's important. And it's not simply about making that role useful, effective and something that has impact within the life of the school. But it's also about making sure that we take care of the basics in terms of recognising young people as individuals within the school. No, I agree with that. And and we could do worse than really seriously. You see, I, I worry about the word transition. Uh-huh. I mean, I think progression would be a better word. And, and it would cause me to think if, well, if I, I, these are points of progression rather than transition. Therefore, I want kids to progress from where they were yeah. and, and not let them slip backwards in terms of their confidence, in terms of their skills, etc., etc. So really, it's, it's, I mean, we'll take the obvious gap between primary and secondary school. It, I mean, it, it's having, it's having... Enabling the kid to demonstrate their best piece of work and take, for example, in English, and the English teacher to be able to say, well, okay, that's your best, is it? Well, that's therefore the baseline from which we're going to progress. Now, I've picked English, but you could equally say, as you were implying, well, where are they in terms of their interests? Mm-hmm. What, what, what passion have they got? You know, I mean, it's the KESS factor that we've talked about. And how is the secondary school going to fuel that so that the Selden point about, which we've referred to before, of every child has a song within them, I mean, how can we make sure that that song is found and developed? Uh, Because if we don't, then we're leaving kids unfulfilled and we're leaving their resilience... uh, not as strong as it should be, and by God, everybody's going to need resilience over the years ahead. Ah, and, and I think particularly in terms of attainment, which is such an obsession, as we've said a number of times before, and one of the conversations that I fall into all the time is that idea of how do you raise attainment, and I've made the argument that it's the performance towards the end of a test where the real scope, the real no, headroom right for improvement that. is... And that's about resilience. That's about not being thrown by an unexpected question or not being put off by the the failure to find an immediate answer, the willingness to persevere, the resilience around that. And it's that connection, I think, that we tried to establish all the time between creativity as a broadening experience, an enriching experience, something that in your terms gives young people the highest sense, 
but also the sense that it also it, it enriches the bread, it enriches the basics, it addresses some of the fundamental issues around attainment and performance and improvement that we seem to be so obsessed with. No, I agree with that. Uh, and And really, in a sense, if we're going to have youngsters who are creative, it is less likely to happen if we aren't creative about their involvement in all aspects of the school, the management of the school, uh, their learning, uh, enabling teaching. I mean, I don't know if you've come across, but I, I mean, just to give you an example of creativity, uh, I don't know if you've read that book. I think it's by a man called Gawande called um, The Checklist Manifesto. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and it applies in medicine and the aircraft industry, and I thought, oh, you can't apply that in, in, in teaching. And yet I came across, which put very simply, for those who haven't read it, is that too many people die in operating theatres and therefore they, you know, you might have forgotten to give the antibiotic, and so therefore there's a list that everybody runs through uh, and they had to get the nurse to do it rather than the consultant. Terrific idea. And I thought, well, you can't do that in, in, in teaching. And then the other day... Do you know, I walked into a year six lesson and it was about to start and there was this kid and he had, it was a he, and he had a list and he was running through the list of things that the kids had to have and then he turned to the teacher and there were a list of things that the teacher had to have. Mm -hmm. Have you got this? Have you got that? Have you got the other? And the teacher was smiling. Because the teacher, of course, had initiated that process. But what a lovely way in which to involve youngsters in the successful delivery of a lesson. So I think there are loads of creative ways in which we might do it, even down to using checklists yeah. in classrooms. And I think that re-emphasises the message that we've been putting out, that we want these to be podcasts that start conversations we want people to come back to us with ideas around how they actually do these things i think what we've argued latterly is that this isn't an either or this isn't about attainment or achievement this isn't about engagement both. or success it's it's elements of both and it's how you pull together those different elements of the curriculum to make the outcomes for young people richer and more successful and hopefully what we'll manage to do through this is get the kind of practical debate that will almost create an online teach meet around this and i think that would be a really good outcome for these conversations thanks to anyone who's listening and a big thanks to anyone who's going to contribute Thank you for downloading this Hayes Education podcast. To request a copy of the 10 Challenges to Becoming a Truly Creative School booklet and to find out more about the services we offer, you can visit our website, which is hayes.co.uk forward slash education. You can speak to your local office regarding forthcoming Leadership Breakfast seminars. And you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Hayes Education UK. Hayes Education.